This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching you? President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gabon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 15th. Today, an accusation of witness intimidation in the impeachment probe, a stand-up comedian on overcoming debilitating stage fright, and Venice underwater. Committee will come to order. Good morning, everyone. So, Shane Harris. This is the second in a series of public hearings. This is day two of the public hearings in the impeachment inquiry, and we are hearing from Marie Ivanovich, the former ambassador to Ukraine. But before we even got a chance to hear from Ivanovich, this thing happened between Republicans and Democrats that was very similar to a thing that happened on Wednesday. Mr. Chairman, I have a parliamentary inquiry. Um, the gentleman is not recognized. I do want to comment. Uh, and Mr. I allow- Chairman, I have a point of order under HRS 660. The gentleman will state her point of order. Uh, the point of order is, will the chairman continue well, to Well, we witnesses? saw this in the first round of testimony from uh, George Kent and Bill Taylor, where Republicans start interrupting Adam Schiff, the chairman, saying things like, uh, point of order. Or, Speaker, I have a point of order. The gentleman's not recognized. The chairman, I have a point of order. The gentleman's not recognized. I have a point of order, though. The gentleman's not recognized. Trying to essentially use this opportunity to say publicly, you're not letting us call the witnesses we want to call. We don't like the way that you've set up the hearings. We feel like this is unfair to us. And kind of you know, throwing up some sand in the gears, if you like. Uh, Schiff this morning was actually really resistant and kept saying things like, the gentleman is not recognized. The gentleman is not recognized. The gentleman is not recognized. Mr. Chairman, there are four transcripts that have not been released. The gentleman is not recognized. Until basically the Republicans just gave up with that and they had to move forward with opening statements. And it creates this atmosphere of contentiousness, I think, between them. Oh, yeah. I mean, Republicans want to take every opportunity that they can to remind people that they object to the process with which these hearings have been held behind closed doors and object to the process now. And remember, the resolution that was voted on to create these public hearings got zero Republican votes. So they very much view this as a kind of railroad of the president. I would expect we're going to see a reprise of this in other hearings as well, them taking that opportunity to to remind people we don't support what's happening here. So today was the first time that we're hearing publicly from Yovanovitch about the events that transpired this year. Remind us who she is and why she's important to the narrative that the Democrats are trying to make. Marie Ivanovich is a career foreign service officer with more than three decades of experience serving around the world in many different posts in many different countries. She was the U.S. ambassador in Ukraine and was very well known and had a reputation in Ukraine for being very tough on corruption, that fighting corruption and promoting rule of law was one of the things that she really wanted to make kind of a hallmark of her ambassadorship. And important to underscore, that is United States policy. That is even the Trump administration's official policy. So deeply respected in the Foreign Service Corps, somebody with a lot of experience, but a kind of an outsized figure well known in Ukraine as somebody who was tough, who meant business uh, and was not afraid to, I think, incur the opposition and the enmity of people that she was trying to expose and put out of business. So one of the reasons why she was testifying was to talk about 
basically how she lost her job, how she was fired very publicly as ambassador. What did we know about that going into this hearing? Well, we had known quite a bit about it, actually, from reporting, but also from her own statements and closed-door depositions. And what she did today was she laid out what she describes as this smear campaign against her that was orchestrated principally by Rudy Giuliani and allies of his both in Ukraine and outside. After being asked by the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs in early March 2019 to extend my tour until 2020, the smear campaign against me entered a new public phase in the United States. In the wake of the negative press, State Department officials suggested an earlier departure, and we agreed upon July 2019. I was then abruptly told, just weeks later in late April, to come back to Washington from Ukraine on the next plane. She meets with the deputy secretary of the State Department who says, you're being removed. The president has lost confidence in you and you're being recalled from post. No real reason was offered as to why I had to leave and why it was being done in such a manner. Did you have any indication that the State Department had lost confidence in you? No. And she talks about how devastating that was for her. Yes. I mean, this is, we should really underscore this. This is not normal. Ambassadors who do not have any negative marks in their records and have no complaints on record from their superiors or from the White House don't just get fired. And this was an important position. Ukraine is a strategically vitally important country in Europe for U.S. interests. This is a big job. And this was, I think, probably going to be her last posting as a career ambassador. And so she does say that it was it was devastating. It was shocking. She didn't understand. And remember, she also understands that it's happening in the context of lots of rumors that are being spread around Ukraine and things that she understands are coming from people associated with the president, not from official channels. So I think that we can kind of appreciate how unusual this was and how stunning and how unfair she thought it was, too. How could our system fail like this? How is it that foreign corrupt interests could manipulate our government? Which country's interests are served when the very corrupt behavior we have been criticizing is allowed to prevail? Such conduct undermines the U.S., exposes our friends, and widens the playing field for autocrats like President Putin. But at the same time, President Trump fires a lot of people, and he fires them in very public and embarrassing ways. And Yovanovitch was fired in May of this year. So that is before the call between President Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky. That's before this pressure campaign ramped up having to do with holding off on giving military aid to Ukraine. And so what does her firing have to do with the central question of was there a, a, a quid pro quo being conducted by the president or his circle? Well, I think that it might not have a lot directly to do with that question. I think it is related in the following sense, that as part of this alleged quid pro quo effort, it's being pushed by Rudy Giuliani, by political appointees at the State Department within what Bill Taylor has called that unofficial channel. And one of the goals that Rudy Giuliani had in all of the work that he was doing in Ukraine was not just to sort of push this policy that was about extracting investigations, but essentially the allegation is that he wanted to also eliminate people that were standing in the way of his own business interests and those of his associates. So removing Yovanovitch is seen as an attempt to send essentially a message in Ukraine that, yeah, this person who's really tough on corruption, we're getting rid of her. The one you don't like, we're getting, we're getting her out of here. And she talks a lot 
lot about that. And I thought what was surprisingly um, very broad tones. I mean, they were, they were, there was a sense going in that I think we believe that Yovanovitch was kind of going to be the Democrats witness to play the role of the victim, quote unquote, right? And that she was going to talk about um, how devastated she was personally and the attacks on her. And while she did that, she also went to great lengths to broaden out why this was a problem. These events should concern everyone in this room. Ambassadors are the symbol of the United States abroad. They are the personal representative of the president. They should always act and speak with full authority to advocate for U.S. policies. If our chief representative is kneecapped, it limits our effectiveness to safeguard the vital national security interests of the United States. There was also a very remarkable moment that happened during this testimony where Yovanovitch was being asked questions by the Democrats' attorney, and then... Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, as we sit here testifying, the president is attacking you on Twitter. And then House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff broke in and basically said, look, you should know that President Trump is tweeting about you right now as we speak. He read the tweet. Everywhere Marie Yovanovitch went turned bad. She started off in Somalia. How did that go? Uh, he goes on to say uh, later in the tweet, is a U.S. president's absolute right to appoint ambassadors. And then he asked her what she thought, what her response was. Right. And she said that it was intimidating. Well, uh, it's very intimidating. Which is a very particular and notable choice of words, right? Well, I want to let you know, Ambassador, that some of us here take witness intimidation very, very seriously, uh, Mr. Goldman. And it would not surprise me if this moment ends up in an article of impeachment. The Democrats have been very clear that they already consider the White House's unwillingness to hand over certain documents and their unwillingness to make certain firsthand witnesses unavailable available for testimony could constitute a case of obstruction. You could see them putting witness intimidation into the mix as well. So then I thought it was interesting that that Republican members who were questioning Yovanovitch kind of took a very different approach from the president. They started complimenting her, thanking her for her service to the United States. Thank you, Ambassador. Before I was interrupted, I wanted to thank you for your 30 years of public service. Talking about uh, what a great ambassador she was and had been. Ambassador, I want to tell you I have a great deal of respect for what you do. I serve on the Armed Services Committee, the Intelligence Committee. I've worked with the NATO Parliamentary Assembly, including being its president. And I know the complexity of, of what you do. And they use that as a jumping off point to basically say... It's up to the president to decide who he wants to have in that role and that you weren't fired. You still work for the State Department. You're still earning a government salary. You were able to be this fellow at Georgetown. Basically, what are you complaining about? Yeah, their strategy was essentially to say, we think you're great, but you're irrelevant to this proceeding. And things worked out fine for you. You went through some tough stuff, but now you've got this cush job and everything is okay. Important to remember that Ambassador Ivanovich did kind of speak up again in defense of herself at some points. What I'd like to say is while I, I um, obviously don't dispute that the president has the right to, um, to withdraw an ambassador at, at, at any time for any reason, um, but what I do wonder is why it was necessary to smear my reputation. And Republicans did not have a good answer for that. And, and I think what they were trying to do in – praising her was to counteract the tweet that the president sent out in which he 
blamed her basically for all the problems in Somalia and said she was terrible, which, I mean, there's not only no evidence of that, there is abundant counter evidence to that. And the members of the committee absolutely knew that and knew that they had to do damage control. And it's also worth noting that multiple Republicans brought up the fact that after Yovanovitch was removed from her role, that Bill Taylor was brought in to replace her and that he is widely seen as another highly respected diplomat, a person with a lot of uh, experience in that region, and that that undermines the idea that Yovanovitch was kicked out for political reasons if another very respected person was put in right after her. Right. And this is a strategy we've seen the Republicans deploying in today, too, and frankly, the White House as well. When you look at, for instance, um, members saying today, well, we understand the military aid may have been held up at one point, but eventually they got the military aid. So what's the problem? And, you know, it, it's sort of like as if saying, well, everything worked out the way that it was supposed to. So any behavior that went on that was irregular before then is somehow irrelevant. You know, that's illogical. I mean, people have made the point that, you know, attempted murder is still a crime, even if you didn't kill somebody. The attempt to do this is what's at issue here. And this is not a criminal proceeding. They're trying to focus on the president's behavior. So Ivanovich, you know, pointed out that, first of all, Bill Taylor's not the ambassador. He actually hasn't been confirmed. He's the, he's the chief diplomat over there. But, you know, Bill Taylor wasn't somebody who was targeted by Rudy Giuliani and by the prosecutor general, general of Ukraine and by Rudy Giuliani's businesses. Associates. He wasn't the target of a smear campaign. She was. And okay, fine. They appoint somebody who is a highly credible person who clearly has concerns about you know Ukrainian corruption. That doesn't mean that all those things did not happen to Marie Ivanovich, and it doesn't excuse what did happen to her. So what happens next in the impeachment inquiry? So actually today there's a deposition being done of a man named David Holmes, who we've talked about in previous editions. This is the newly revealed witness to a phone conversation between Gordon Sundland, who is running Ukraine policy for the president and the president himself, where he asks about investigations. This is the phone call that we just heard about on Wednesday, two That's days right. ago. That's right. Yeah, the one that Bill Taylor sort of dropped in there and saying he himself had just learned about it the previous Friday. So that's new information. That individual is being deposed. I would suspect he will be eventually a public witness as well. And so then on Saturday, the action continues. Uh, Mark Sandy, who is an OMB official, is going to testify. Um, and it's expected that Sandy will be able to fill in a lot of the gaps and understanding around why the military aid to Ukraine was held up, and that was being held up by the OMB. And then next week, we're going to see more of what we saw this week, except several more of these hearings and witnesses coming forward. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if there are witnesses scheduled in tandem, there are witnesses scheduled in the morning and the afternoon. What the Democrats are trying to do is get through as much of this process as they can, maybe take a week off for Thanksgiving and come back and I think do one more week. Then they're going to write their report, which is to sum up everything they've learned in these depositions and in the public hearings. Then that goes over to the Judiciary Committee and we're in the next phase of the process. And Shane, you will be with us next week to talk about all of that. Yes, I will be here. There's no escaping. Shane Harris is a national security reporter for The Post. Jenny Slate is a performer, a comedian, a writer. She also had a stint on Saturday Night Live as a cast member. But people might know her from some of her other roles. I think people know me from Marcel the Shell. My name is Marcel, and I'm partially a shell, as you can see on my body. But I also have shoes and um, a face, so... 
from the Kroll Show. And my new rescue dog, Brad, can totally walk the red carpet. From the movie Obvious Child. I am pregnant. As Mona Lisa Saperstein on Parks and Rec. Money, please. The cartoon Big Mouth, which is on Netflix. And now I hope they know me from my special and from my new book, which is called Little Weirds. Okay, who are you and what do you do? I'm Elahe Azadi, and I am a pop culture writer for The Washington Post. It's worth pointing out that the name of her Netflix stand-up special is Stage Fright, which I think is interesting because as much as the history and culture of stand-up is to be vulnerable on stage to tell sort of embarrassing stories about yourself and your experiences and like awkward, weird, crazy things that have happened to you, I think that there is the unspoken rule of, yes, you can make fun of yourself, but you cannot acknowledge your own nervousness in the moment because that makes you look weak and not confident and not kind of present and powerful on stage. But the fact that she does that and gets up there and is like, I'm really nervous and let's talk about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Totally. And, you know, there are other comedians, Bill Hader on SNL. He's talked about how much he had really crippling stage fright and anxiety. Mitch Hedberg, who was a stand-up comedian, had stage fright and nervousness. And that's why he would wear these sunglasses on stage and sort of look down. But, But Jenny Slate is out here just like talking about it within her special and not just that, but she she shows herself experiencing it and talking about it and crying like before she's gonna film her special. Right before I go on stage, I am like presented with this essential question, which is, will they, will they lo- like, lo- like me? So you actually got the chance to talk to her in person about this at the National Portrait Gallery in D.C. What was that like? Yeah, so she arrives maybe even before the time we were supposed to meet, but she was very punctual. She arrives in a J. Crew turtleneck. She felt very Sharon Stone at the Oscars. Remember when she was like, yeah. it's a Gap turtleneck. <laughs> um, that's what I'm doing. And she's wearing this very beautiful tweed gray coat that she had bought as a gift to herself. And... Yeah patent leather combat boots and this like emerald green purse. And yeah, that's how she showed up. She had her hair up in a bun and she was just very pleasant. And on the day that you were meeting up with her and interviewing her, that was also the day of her show here in D.C. at George Washington University. Like considering the fact that she's so open about stuff like stage fright and being nervous before big performances. Did you guys talk about that? The way it works for her is the moment that she opens her mouth and she's on stage, she's at ease. It's everything sort of in the lead up to it. That's when she experiences it. What do you think was the catalyst when you first experienced stage fright and what was going on deep down inside of you? I think when I kind of made the jump from the outside would seem like I was going from amateur to professional, meaning working for free to being on TV, from playtime to something that has repercussions. And I stepped out of a small community onto, you know, a television show that airs almost at midnight and the entire country sees it and, you know, the world and whatever. And it just, it was just too big of a jump. And I felt very, very small and young and not ready and not like slick, not suave enough to do 
that work. And I started to notice it creep in when I would go from 30 Rock down to my show in Williamsburg on Wednesday nights and feel like sort of a stranger to myself. And I think what happened for me was that there was a dissonance between the person that I saw in 30 Rock, who was meek, unfit, not right, to then going back down to this little theater in Williamsburg where we did our, our live show called Big Terrific and being like, nobody here knows that I'm eating uptown and nobody here knows how scared I am. And then that transferred into nobody knows me and I'm alone in my experience of despair. And all of a sudden I just didn't feel very funny anymore. I mean, I would imagine Saturday Night Live when you were on that show that that would be one of the worst places to yeah. with someone with anxiety and stage fright. I mean, Bill Hader's talked about the crippling anxiety yeah. he had when he was on that show. Yeah. So your name kept coming up in the past couple of weeks as you're writing about the whole Shane Gillis thing and yeah. and people saying, well, they fired Jenny Slate for cursing on air, which I don't think is true, No, right? that's not why they fired me. Yeah, I just didn't get it. I didn't get how to be there. I didn't understand what that job was. I thought that it would be like f***ing around with my improv group in college or like all the comedians I knew, you know, performing in the Lower East Side or whatever. And it just wasn't. It was, you know, it's like a very long-standing system. And I grew up worshiping Gilda Radner, but it wasn't the system of Gilda Radner, even if the schedule was maybe the same. You know, the, the spirit was different. And I was totally not suited for it, very anxious, did not have much faith in myself and found myself in a really unfun position of trying to figure out how to ingratiate myself to a system that really didn't want anyone like me in the first place. But there is no way that they hiring me could have known that I was not right for the show because my audition showed that I was, because my skill set as a performer is right. I can play lots of characters and do lots of voices and I'm funny, but I can't exist in that environment. Now that I know what that job is, I think it's like so silly that I would ever try to have been there. I'm just, I'm just not right for it. Nor am I right for like, you know, a regular spot on a, um, on like a network sitcom. I just can't do that. I'm not good enough at that uh, activity. Given that live performance is such a big part of your career and what you do, how do you cope with something that can seem debilitating when that's so connected to, yeah. <laughs> to, your, to your work? What happened for me was that the stage fright did become impassable. Like I could not get over it and it did ruin some shows, which means that I went through them robotically and didn't have fun. And I think the key to my stand-up being elevated is not just the subject matter, but the fact that I am clearly enjoying it. Churches are just beautiful little castles for God. Like, this is gorgeous. <laughs> but everyone in there was, like, dressed in red and green, and, like, then the guys came out, the priests, um, and they had the incense, and they were like, what? Yeah! Everyone's dressed up. And, like, they sing the songs, and, like, weirdly, I knew some of the songs, because they're, like... I, I am making a suggestion to the audience that they laugh, and it's not just because my material is funny, but it's because I'm laughing, too. It's sort of being like, ooh, eat this thing, it's delicious, you gotta try this.
So, Alahe, what do you think was most notable about what she had to say about her stage fright? I think just how in tune she is with where it comes from and that it's not like she's fighting it necessarily. That's not the feeling I got, but she encounters it within her life and that she still experiences it. You know, like someone who does this for a living. She performs for a living and she's still someone who experiences it and is learning how to experience it and how to continue sharing her art and do the thing that she loves most, which is like connecting with people and and having this experience, this collective performative experience with people. So I went to a hypnotist. So sort of cheesy. But before I go on stage, I always say out loud, I'm a seasoned professional. Which is like not anything I would say. So I do think that the hypnosis worked because I don't know why I say that. <laughs> like it got implanted. I'm a seasoned in professional. Mind. It's like I actually don't feel that way about myself, or I don't know, I don't see myself in those terms, but I do <laughs> say it. And for some reason, I chill. And I just have dug more and more into this thing that's like, look, there's evidence here for people wanting to see you. frightening (laughs) to be so out of breath um, when you meet people you don't want to be like (laughs) um, right away but I hope you know that um, it's only because I'm excited to be here hi how are you hi hi. the smallest things could make a social situation just go like totally haywire for me and I think I have always until very recently very recently had this sense that I'm just at the whim of it and so when I go on stage, that's like, that's like my best self because I have to protect myself by doing well at my art. And that's the cycle that's kind of happening the moments before you step on stage. But yeah. then once you're in that moment, it's... It's just like... It's not there anymore. It's not there anymore. Yeah. The tension is there, like a tightrope walker. The tension right. is there. It's just like, I just don't, I just don't think I'll fall. It just is never, there's no way. There's no way to fall. Alahe Izadi is a pop culture writer for The Post. You can find Jenny Slate's special called Stage Fright on Netflix. Her book, Little Weirds, is out now. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org. And now, one more thing from Venice. It's almost a preposterous thing to see up close. You have canals everywhere. And it is kind of example number one of how people can live beautifully right alongside it. But now the water is rising and and some scientists say that the city will be underwater within a century. So if that transition is underway, what I was looking at is a pretty surreal look at the future. 
I am Chico Harlan, the Washington Post's Rome Bureau Chief, and I'm reporting today from Venice, Italy, after the city experienced its worst flooding of the last 50 years. Earlier today, I was standing in the middle of Piazza San Marco, which is normally the heart of the city. It gets, of course, a lot of tourists. Now, the tourists are still here, but the water was shin-high across the piazza, and most of the tourists were getting around thanks to wooden makeshift planks that have been erected across this part of the city. Now, the planks are narrow. They're not exactly easy for two-way traffic, and that's especially true because people kept stopping to take these disaster selfies. But the water coming and going, it, it makes city life really difficult. Earlier today, I've been inside this giant basilica. I can say this as somebody who's been in so many of Italy's churches. This one, like far and away, is the most gorgeous. Every inch ceiling and floor covered in these intricate mosaics. Anyway, it got flooded too. The cathedral's head of restoration led us inside and, and he showed us all the ways that the water and particularly the salt leaves damage behind. And there were a few times he touched marble and it just, it just crumbled or gave way. Introduce yourself if you can. Flavia Felletti. Okay. Uh, vivo Venezia da um, 60 anni. The Venetians, though, that I, I talked to are really worried about its future. Tell us a little bit about your emotions of the last two days. Mm, very strong emotions. Mm, Venice uh, gave us the image of a funeral. A lot of people... Uh, look not to have a hope in the future here. For the people who live here, they're starting to fear that if they remain, life will become this constant battle of dealing with the waters and the flooding and the cleanup, and many of them don't know what's going to happen in the years ahead. Chico Harlan is the Rome bureau chief for The Post. In the past, Venice experienced these high-water episodes every 100 years or so. Now, they're expected to occur much more frequently. A UN panel on climate change says that they could happen every five months by the year 2100. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. For even more on the impeachment hearings, check out The Post's politics podcast, Can He Do That?, with host Allison Michaels. She's talking to reporter Matt Zapatosky, breaking down everything that's happened this week in the congressional impeachment inquiry. Listen at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or search Can He Do That? on your podcast app. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Renny Svernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. 
The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by the Association of American Railroads. New technology creates a smarter and safer freight rail network that is ready to meet the needs of tomorrow. Visit AAR.org.